Hi, I'm John Byrne with Poets and Quants. Welcome to our new series on personal leadership. We're here again on the Bloomington, Indiana campus of Indiana University at Kelly School of Business. I'm here with the Eric and Ray Show. Eric Johnson, Executive Director of Graduate Career Services at Kelly, and Ray Luther, who's Executive Director, and this is a mouthful, of the Partnership for Coaching Excellence and Personal Leadership. Welcome, guys. Thanks for having us, John. So today's session is going to be devoted to self-observant leadership. What is it? Yeah, so there's a, uh, there's a, a professor out of Harvard that has a, a great concept called adaptive leadership. And one of the key tenets he talks about is the ability to be simultaneously on the balcony and the dance floor, right? So as a leader, when you're practicing and you're adapting, you need to perform as a leader, but you also need to observe yourself as a leader. And Eric and I have been working on this for a number of years because what we've noticed as we worked with MBA students and executives is the ability to observe oneself is absolutely critical to leading yourself. And leading yourself is the key foundation of all leadership development. So if we can start the process of self-observation, if we can help people work through a model and understand how exactly they can do this to become more effective, we're at the very uh, beginning of what does it mean to move somebody along the adult development curve and how they can advance themselves as a leader. Hmm. That sounds kind of fancy. Isn't it basically leadership starts by facing yourself and looking at yourself in the mirror? Sure, John. You want a job? So that is it, right? That is, well, it is and it isn't. I mean, it's, it's not just looking at yourself in the mirror or even some of the classic emotional intelligence principles like self-awareness and self-regulation, but it's also the ability to make meaning out of the observations that you're noticing um, and actually then choosing to adapt in a conscious and meaningful way for the purposes of self-improvement. So um, it, it kind of encompasses all of those things into an art, so to speak. And at, at the top of the, the framework here is self-honesty. Yeah. And how does one define that? And how do you know you're getting it? One of the quotes that we share a lot with our students is that we think the greatest gift we can give someone is actually the ability to be honest with themselves and self-honesty really is rooted in, in sort of two tenets. One is the ability to know your identity, which is how you define yourself. And your identity is the sum of a lot of things like values and purpose and uh, motivators and grit and self-compassion and all of that. But like how you truly view yourself. And then your reputation is how other people view you. And self-honesty is fully coming to grips with what both of those are and understanding the difference between identity and reputation and choosing to uh, take actions to try to reconcile that gap to a point which you're comfortable with. Yeah, I think the important part is it's not necessarily, we don't use the word closing the gap. We're not trying to necessarily just shut it down and say you can't have differences here because I think we all have differences. But if we can if we can understand how others experience us via our reputation, that can go a long way to understanding what is it that we do to influence them or frankly, what is it that we do to not influence them? And then how does that actually construct our own identity? We all have ways of making meaning out of situations that can look very, very different, right? And that difference is important because it's not obvious. 
And so oftentimes we assume, assume the way we're making meaning is the way everyone else is making meaning. Right. Right. And that's a huge kind of problem as we go through and we start to work against, hey, my identity and how I make sense of the world is the, the assumption is it's the same as everybody. So therefore, this is how people must experience me. And frankly, we kind of all know objectively that's not true. But to actually live it is a whole different ball of wax. Okay. So bring this alive for me. Give me an example. Yeah, so I mean, oftentimes we'll work with executives and this is kind of the classic example and I'm thinking of one in particular whose reputation is extremely hard to work with, uh, straight shooter, no nonsense and doesn't put up with any any junk and you better have your stuff in order. Right. And when I start coaching that person and we work on that person's identity, there's part of the pride and kind of ego that goes along with that reputation. Hey, I'm a hard shooter, I'm tough. But then as we get into how that person makes meaning for themselves and what makes up their identity, there's very little of that reputation that necessarily ties in with exactly how that person wants to show up. In fact, sometimes they struggle with it because that reputation has to become an act or something that actually is different from their genuine self as they see it, or frankly, as they're evolving, right? And so we need to remember the self is not static. The self changes as we hit new levels, new challenges, new leadership development planes. So that, that constant need to evaluate what is it that makes up who I am and then how are people experiencing me goes towards what does the practice actually look like? And the practice is can, not only can you identify your values, can you identify your purpose, can you identify your vision? So purpose being what gets me out of bed in the morning, vision being where am I headed? Sure, I can identify it, but then when I go exercise that, if I'm exercising it in an organization, how are others experiencing that? Because I can be extremely proud of this identity, but the way others experience it may be very, very different. But you're not exactly looking for alignment. No, yeah. no. I, I think you would want to look for understanding, uh, right? We want to look for understanding of, can I be genuine to who I am? And there's lots of, there's lots of work around authentic leadership, which is great. But what does it mean to be an authentic leader? Is that just nice? Is that just pleasant to work with or what? I, I think it's important to be authentic, but understand what is it that's at the core of my identity? And then how do I understand my reputation so I can at least be choiceful, right? Mm -hmm. If we can get to some level of choice, hopefully can, we can work towards closer alignment would be a good thing, I think, to shoot for. But I think at some level, we're looking for understanding and acceptance and conscious awareness of the practice. Well, and reputation is often contextual. Like my identity is my identity. It's who I am wherever I go. But my reputation at work might be a little bit different than my reputation in my neighborhood, might be a little bit different than my reputation in some of the social activities that I choose to participate in. So um, again, I would hope that there were some consistencies between those things, but context matters a lot when thinking about reputation. Well, and frankly, it, it, the, the need to evolve is something that I think a lot of young managers somewhat struggle with going up the chain. You can be extremely, quote unquote, authentic as you enter in and you can be a straight shooter and you know very clear on what you want and, and driven. And as you move up any organization, those organizations are going to have missions and things that you need to accomplish that may or may not align with your own, your own desires, right? Mm -hmm. Your own way of being. And at some point, you've got to work through for yourself hey, there's job requirements, right? Not every CEO is leading their authentic selves based upon exactly what they want to do because they have responsibility and they're stewards for greater organizations. That's important to keep working through as you're moving up the chain, in, excuse me, in any organization. Now, are there tests that one takes to determine one's uh, 
own uh, observant qualities and, and then a test that uh, perhaps your peers or others would take uh, to get a better fix on how they think of you? I mean, there's no one test per se to really get at your identity. I think there are a series of assessments, um, such as a personality assessment or some values assessments. Um, I think there's an active art of ongoing reflection, whether that be journaling or mindfulness or some other tool to capture your attitudes and behaviors over time that you can observe. Um, I think for reputation, there are tools like 360 degree feedback mechanisms that do give you some idea based on questions which have been asked about how you do see yourself show up from a behavior standpoint and some attitudes vis-a-vis uh, -vis how other people see you. And, and we do believe heavily in 360s. I think they're at their most powerful when they tend to be fairly timely, fairly robust. Um, I have a personal bias towards non-anonymous because I think that that art of um, being able to give somebody feedback and accept feedback from a person adds some context to any of the mm. feedback situations which are right. discussed, which I think is important. Um, and it, But it's really the sum of those. In addition, I would argue to working with an external coach that can help you make sense of how you view your takeaways from whatever ongoing practice of reflection you have and how you view your ability to reconcile your feedback versus others in the 360 and choose to apply that over time. And I think that those things together can really get at both of these things. And there are deliberate practices involved in this exercise, right? Yeah, yeah. I think the deliberate practice that we've talked about and, and we, we encourage folks to work is can you identify and live your values? Can you identify and live your purpose? And can you identify and live some sort of conscious awareness practice so that you can stay in the moment and know when these things are occurring, right? Because without conscious awareness, no level of self-observation can really occur. You have to be able to step back and sit in the present moment. Um, we spend a lot of time on the practice on trying to define what they're chasing. Right. So lots of new research around, you know, happiness is a, is a pretty interesting topic. And there's there's a lot of new emerging research around are people chasing happiness or are they chasing meaning? Right. And, and what is it? Is happiness just a temporary pleasure, if you will, versus meaning is a little bit more longer lasting? And how does somebody make sense between those two? Right. When you're thinking about um, what is going to give you satisfaction and what makes up your identity, typically there's, a, there's an ultimate benefit that that person is looking to express. And as we practice things like value and as we practice things like purpose or personal vision, we're actually shooting more for meaning than necessarily happiness, right? Where is this person gonna derive meaning? How can they actually um, find a way to live these things in a way that they give themselves what would be observable moments? Right. That's the practice that we're shooting for, which can be supported via coaching, right? It can be supported via peer coaching, working with a friend, or ultimately what we hope to do is it can be supported by the process of self-observation when they can actually notice these things in real time of, hey, I'm actually finding meaning in this activity that maybe not everybody sees the same way, and that literally makes up part of my identity. On, on some level, I wonder if uh, what you're doing is making people be more self-conscious about what they do, but uh, isn't the act of doing uh, antithetical to the act of examining what you're doing? Um, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, in other words, you know, it's, it's possible for people to think too much and do too less. Mm. 
uh, particularly when it comes to, you know, the grind of getting stuff done. I think yeah. that's fair. You know? I would say the converse is probably true more than your challenge. <laughs> <laughs> so while we sit with many yeah. type A individuals, they like to do more than think. Yes, And indeed. frankly, most are very familiar with the concept of self-awareness. And if we ask them, are you self-aware? The answer we get back 99 times out of, of course I'm self-aware. Right? And then you go into the depth of what would be there in the process of self-awareness. And it's, it's quite clear after you talk to somebody, not because you can judge it from the outside, but in, in the process of asking them some questions, their level of examination is, is somewhat thin. So yes. I, think, I think what you highlight could be a risk maybe for the philosophers we deal with. And that's, that's true. We both have a bias towards action. Yeah. But I would say the pace of modern life and the pace of the modern business world where we're working with people generally causes the opposite to occur, that they don't even have time to think. No, they confuse activity with productivity. And I think, I think if you're really good at practicing this model, you might choose to do less. But the things you choose to do are things that you do well, um, you do deeply versus just do to get done. Um, so you do them with a sense of excellence and you do them with a sense of purpose. Like I can explain the choices that I've made from a doing perspective because they're aligned with a very specific objective that's aligned to a vision or they're aligned with a very specific purpose that, that helps me believe that I matter. And so it's it might be doing less, but doing it better and with a greater sense of excellence. Well, and Eric and I were just talking about that podcast and, and work from that group called The Minimalists, right? And that's yeah. an interesting movement going on right now where at a surface level, it looks like just getting rid of excess crap, right? And when you go deeper, it's not just getting rid of stuff. It's actually being mindful and choiceful about what do you actually involve in your life that brings you some sense of meaning or joy, right? So it's, it's not just, yes, I had a thousand things and now I have 10, it's kind of a choiceful about X number of things that I have. And I can look at each one of those things and say, yeah, there's, there's something behind it, right? And whatever that happens to be, there's some meaning. It's not just sitting around. Same thing can apply here. If I'm engaged in an activity, if I'm doing something at work, sure, it might be an assignment, but I should at least be able to make meaning out of it that there's some role it's playing in my own development. And if there's not, that's a perfect conversation for you to have with yourself first, and then maybe some of the other people you work with as you continue to define what you want to be when you grow up. So ultimately, the goal of being more self-observant is to become a better leader. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it, we would argue it's the a prerequisite yes. of becoming a better leader. All right. Eric and Ray, thank you very much. We will uh, be back with uh, our second episode in which we'll talk a little bit about how do you really make this happen? This is John Byrne with Poets and Quants and our series on personal leadership. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> <laughs>